Hi everyone and welcome to For Fat's Sake, the ferret's podcast about misinformation and fat checking. I am your host as always, Ali Bryan, and with me, the pharaoh of phono, Paul Dobson. That's a deep cut, that one. Does that work? I guess so. We'll give you it. We'll give you it. Thank you. Phono, that's like sort of related to sound in a way. (laughs) And there's not a lot of PHs going on, so I think I'm happy with that. No, it's good. It's been three weeks since we were last with you, listeners. We took a week off because our investigation, Scotland's Secret Owners, was going in the Herald on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday last week. But we're back. And since we were last with you, there's been some news in Scottish politics. Former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon arrested. We'll talk more about that later. But um, how have you been for the last three weeks, Paul? I've been well, mostly. Yeah, I was saying to you that I spent a wee bit too much time in the pub last night waiting for the Scotland game to restart after mm. that torrential rain in Glasgow. So feeling not quite as refreshed this morning as I usually do. But otherwise, I'm very well. How are you doing, Ali? Broadly similar for me, but we're um, <laughs> pushing on because we're professionals. And this week on the podcast, we have three excellent features. Is that fair to say? Of course. That's exactly how I would describe them. First off, we've got friend of the podcast, Ferret co-chair, Nick Williams, who also works for the Index on Censorship, talking about slap actions. These are strategic litigation against public participation, which is when powerful individuals uh, threaten legal action um, against journalists in order to stop them from publishing stories, which are usually very accurate. We've also, it's fair to say me responding to my haters on a fact check we did around the Nicola Sturgeon arrest and possibly the weirdest, most niche Paul's Curiosity Corner so far. That's right. We're talking this morning, but not potentially the story you would think of when you think of that ITV show at the moment. Exactly. What an amazing tease. So let's start off speaking to Nick about slaps. Hi, my name's Nick Williams. I'm the Policy and Campaigns Officer at Index on Censorship. I think also for full disclosure, I'm the co-chair of The Ferret. This week we're talking about slaps, which is a term that people may have heard. um, And it's something which affects uh, investigative journalists, fact checkers around the world. For the listeners, could we just define our terms? So what does slap stand for and what does it mean? Slaps stand for strategic lawsuits against public participation. Or you will see it described as strategic litigation against public participation. That's the, they're the same thing. The L sometimes is switched out. It was originally coined in the US by some legal uh, experts. Um, basically, I mean, to drill down, it means an abusive lawsuit filed by a private party with the purpose of silencing critical speech. That's really it. Um, in the UK, it, you tend to see it in terms of like defamation cases against journalists. But the, the crucial thing about slaps is that they're not tied to certain causes of action. What we're looking at in slaps is basically a pursuer, a slap pursuer will use whatever legal mechanism they can to reach their goal, which is a silenced or restricted or censored public civic space, whether that's a journalist, fact checker, academic, researcher, campaigner. The goal is not really a court case. It's not really a verdict in their favour or damages because most slap cases never make it to court. The real sting of a slap is in all of the legal correspondence, the 
the threat, the requirement to, to retain documents for discovery or disclosure, all the stuff that happens before court case, because then the person who's targeted, whether it's a journalist or a fact checker, basically has to spend more time preparing their defence than actually doing their actual investigation. What is their impact on journalism? And do we have a sense of how many slaps are put out each year? We don't really have a sense of how many slaps because most cases never make it to court. Yeah. We don't, there's no real public footprint of those, short of those who themselves go public to say that this has happened to them. We, we don't know. Foreign Policy Centre has undertaken some research, as well as other members of the UK Anti-Slap Coalition, uh, to find that slaps are, in, are on the rise and that the UK is the number one originator of um, abusive legal actions. It's also... Um, in the FBC's own research found that the UK has been identified as the leading source of slaps, almost as frequent a source as all of the EU countries and the US combined. So we always hear about the US and the legal culture in the US and that sort of sue happy state. But actually, we, we, we dwarf the sort of uh, the US when it comes to slaps. And also the US, most states in the US have far stronger anti-slap protections than we have in the UK. But yeah, so tendent, we do tend to see a huge increase in threats to journalists, especially. And so we see this in, you know, the threats against Carol Cadwallader after by by Aaron Banks. I mean, her case, you know, there's so much argument and so many arguments as to whether it was a slap or wasn't a slap. Uh, the UK Slap Coalition, of which Index is a co-chair, has come out saying that we believe it's a slap. You know, the key thing is she was sued for cases, for tweets and comments she made on a TED Talk and in her um, tweets related to her work on The Observer, but the Observer, neither The Observer nor Ted were sued. Two bodies that have eminent legal funds um, and the ability to defend themselves. Carol was targeted singularly. We see this as a big tactic. So individual journalists themselves targeted, not the outlets themselves. So basically what you're saying is that wealthy, powerful individuals can get off the hook because there's less appetite for newspapers to take on that type of story and exactly i mean you know one of the reasons why the ferret existed in the first place was the lack of appetite for independent um investigative journalism lack of appetite and lack of funds because it's long resource intensive when the ferret talks about being resource intensive they talk about legal resources in being able to defend their journalism from legal threats um so this is it's it's really coming at a time where the media environment is 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 ripe for being skewed by the the threats of legal harassment because slaps are really time-intensive to fight. We've mentioned Carol Cadwallader as a kind of fairly high-profile case, but are there any other examples of slaps which you could talk about that have happened in Scotland or in the UK? The obvious one recently because of the the level of public attention and also the certain brazenness is the threat to Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Higgins was threatened because he said that Prigozhin was the head of the Wagner group, you know, the, mili- the private military group we're now seeing in Ukraine. They've also, you know, been active across North Africa um, and I think areas in the Middle East with incredibly l- lax oversight and, and, and credible um, evidence of, of um, mis- uh, malpractice. Um, yeah, so basically he got threatened for for alleging that, you know, and later on he tweeted himself that he himself was affiliated in the head of Wagner Group. So, but then this this is after he had 
instructed counsel had started this legal action in in the UK, and it was the most egregious case. Open Democracy have sort of given some examples, um, have published some sort of reporting as to some of the behind the scenes stuff with the UK government because Pogosian was already on um, the sanctions list. He basically he should have required permission to be able to secure a license to be able to bring legal action in the UK. And I think a lot of the reporting showing that it was far too easy for him to do so. He was able to pay for his lawyers to travel to St. Petersburg while under sanctions, um, but still be able to carry out this legal action against Elliot Higgins. I mean, to their credit, the UK government has tightened up the regulation that covers that licensing process to make it harder for people like Prigozhin to bring legal action in the first place. But it, ultimately, it should never have got to that stage. and it should, it, He should not have been able to get a license um, to be able to bring action. I will say just very quickly, Scotland, obviously, I mean, we've got to be honest, Scotland does not have the legacy of slap actions that the UK, that England um, does, especially London. But there are some cases, again, that I think we need to start having honest conversations about. The legal threat against National Collective back in 2013 needs to be looked again, looked at again through the lens of um, bearing the hallmarks of slaps. This is a small blog that Report, reported on the background of a funder for the um, Better Together campaign based exclusively on previously already published materials published by mainstream media outlets. This is not fringe blog, you know, stuff that hasn't been verified or gone through any sort of journalistic practice. This is pub, this is this is just using publicly available sources and they were threatened to the extent they had to take their website down because they didn't have any legal support. And it was only after securing pro bono support they were able to push back a little bit or just to ensure that they could keep the site up and I think that's one of the most egregious cases and also really shows the inequity of arms at the heart of slaps you've got a multi-millionaire against I think volunteer bloggers writing on around the issues around the Scottish independence referendum okay so the UK government has announced it's planning to put in place anti-slap legislation. So what is happening and does it go far enough? In July 2021, the UK government announced commitments to pass anti-slap legislative measures, which was a very welcome development. And their response to the public consultation that the Ministry of Justice put together, again, quite positive. It was ambitious enough Arguably for the first steps, you know, they said they did acknowledge, for example, that it was bigger than just reforming defamation law, which is a really good first initial step. But then ever since basically July, it's been a very long period of silence. You know, it's not exactly been the most stable time for the UK government. So obviously their their focus has been elsewhere. But mm. there's been a lot of time lost in this sort of another sort of weird liminal space between the commitment and making any movement. We do not have a standalone anti-slap law in the UK Parliament, and we have no real timeline for for that. What we do have is a recent development um, made on the 13th of June, where the UK government announced a, um, a anti-slap amendment to the um, Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which will look to establish anti-slap protections for reporting on economic crime. It's a, it's a good first step, but it doesn't go far enough. It only covers reporting related to economic crime. What's the situation with the Scottish government in that regard? 
Scottish government have been very, very slow to make any progress on, on this. I believe the amendment to the Economic Crime Bill will not come into force in Scotland. Last year, Roger Mullin, a former MP for the SNP, published a petition to bring about Scots law anti-slap bill. It was discussed in a parliamentary committee in January. They basically understood the need for it and actually were very accommodating and a very and very support. I would, yeah, I would say supportive of mm. looking at what an anti-slap bill in Scotland would look like. Um, the Scottish government's position is because the Defamation and Malicious Publication Act is relatively new in Scotland, it only was was finalised in 2021, that bill is sufficient to protect Scotland against slaps. Right. As someone who worked on that bill for a long time, I feel a little bit precious about it, but I will say it is not sufficient. To sort of put it in context, do you think slaps are part of the atmosphere of increased intimidation and harassment of journalists and fact-checkers that's become more of a public thing in recent years? Yes, definitely. I mean, we need to see slaps not as this stood-alone thing in itself. We need to see it as a tool used mm -hmm. to silence or threaten journalists alongside loads of other tools. Um, and, you know, depending on which case, you'll see all these other things being brought to bear as well. So again, during uh, Carol Cadwallader's case, I mean, ignoring what your position is on whether it was actually a slap or not a slap, you know, I mean, that, uh, that argument takes a lot of the oxygen out of the room when you talk about this. But mm -hmm. in reality, what happened is when as that case was going on, you saw this incredibly vitriolic torrent of abuse towards Carol, mm. which was vitriolic and misogynistic by nature. It was part of this wider harassment of her. You know, that was, you know, you don't know where the source was coming from. But again, it was just this way of this sort of 360 degree um, sort of assault on her. So we need to see this as part of this wider trend of journalists, but also other public watchdogs being seen as sort of targets, um, le legitimate targets of, of whatever body they may be, you know, whether it's anti-vaxxers or certain p members of political groups. You know, we have slaps in Europe, you know, in like places like Serbia, where, you know, fact checking organizations and journalists are being threatened by politicians. Um, and then as they are, you know, when it's a politician involved, you've also got the wider coercive pressure of their political parties and the, and, and the political movements that they're attached to. So slaps don't happen in isolation. Slaps are supported by this wider inability to defend or willingness to defend journalists or public interest reporting. We need to look at it as a journalist safety issue. We yeah. need to look, look at it as a media freedom issue and a media pluralism issue as well. Okay, Ali, so last week you fact-checked a viral picture of former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon in the back of a Police Scotland car following her arrest last weekend. There was a bit of hilarity at, we'll say at the ferret's expense, not directly aimed at you, uh, in the responses to that particular fact-check, with many mm. punters pointing out that it was a pretty obvious fake which they didn't think needed to be fact-checked. Um, one thing that I noticed was a lot of people sending us other clearly photoshopped pictures of Nicola Sturgeon asking if they were real. Yeah. So 
on the pod today, uh, we're going to give you a platform as our esteemed fact-checking lead to respond to those haters. So, first of all, just to recap, why has Nicola Sturgeon been arrested and what do we actually know so far? Yeah, so Sturgeon was arrested uh, as part of the investigation into S&P's finances, which has been called Operation Branch Form. Uh, She's the third major party figure to be arrested after her husband, Peter Morrow, former chief executive of the S&P, and the former treasurer, Colin Beattie. Uh, Police also searched uh, the house that she shares with Peter Morrow, her husband, outside Glasgow in April. Right, so what did the picture that has caused all the trouble show? showed Sturgeon in the back of a police car. Simple as that. And how obviously fake was it? Well, that's a really a question of um, perception. Um, I uh, obviously was aware that some people in the comments had been saying this is a really obvious Photoshop and it's worthy of fact-checking. And the ones I missed, obviously, thank you so much to for forwarding those ones on throughout the week. <laughs> Very welcome. Um, Very welcome. So, yeah, no, it's fair to say it wasn't a very sophisticated Photoshop job. Like, there's several telltale signs that it wasn't actually... Uh, photograph that had been edited we actually managed to track down the original photo of her that had been used to make the composite image which was her leaving uh, butte house the first minister's residence in edinburgh in, in 2017 when she was first minister okay so yeah state your defense why was mm. it worth the ferret fact checking this the reason we fact check it is because it was getting thousands of shares across social media Obviously, a lot of them will be people sharing it because it's a funny image, not because they think it's accurate. But we were also asked to fact check it by a number of our readers and people on socials and other uh, platforms. It was being shared by some prominent social influencers. And we know that from our fact checking work that it doesn't necessarily take a really advanced bit of photoshopping to create a false impression. Uh, it's one of a series of like image-based fact checks we've done uh, in recent years. Um, and many of the ones that get a lot of traction aren't like hugely complex editing jobs. Okay, and it is fair to say that there were quite a few people who were, who valued the fact check and who used it as evidence that you know this was a fake. So it did have value in some people's eyes. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a, there's a thing where people quite often uh, think, oh, this is a really obvious fact. This is a really obvious um, fake image or whatever. This is a really obvious fact check. We knew this, blah blah. blah. But a lot of people don't know that, and a lot of people don't necessarily have. Either they looked at it very quickly, didn't drill down into it, or they didn't really know the background of the case so well. It's not the first time that people have been fooled by a quite obvious or quite um, seemingly obvious uh, photoshopped image. So you may have noticed there's been a lot of news about ITV's flagship morning show this morning in recent weeks, but in classic Paul's Curiosity Corner fashion, we are going to be talking about the most bizarre story involving a member of the show's cast. Last week, a promoted post appeared with an apparent obituary of this morning's resident celebrity chef, at least I think he's still the celebrity chef, I don't really watch anymore, Gino DeCampo. But fortunately, Gino is still very much alive and well. So can you tell us what was going on here, Ali? Yeah, this is a really weird one um, and quite perfect, I suppose, for Paul's Curiosity Corner. Um, So basically, a promoted post appeared on Twitter linking to an apparent obituary of Gino DeCampo by The Guardian. The link itself appeared to go to The Guardian website. When you actually clicked it, 
the page linked to another story about Gino, allegedly from The Guardian, where he was being sued by the Bank of England. Uh, this story was attributed to the paper's tech editor, Alex Hearn, who is the, is the actual tech editor of The Guardian. But if you read through the story itself, it becomes clear it's actually a promotional post which relays a very obviously fake conversation Gino supposedly had on Graham Norton's TV show where he extols the virtues of this AI cryptocurrency trading platform. Yeah, so a lot to unpick there. So first of all, why did the user make that Twitter post? What was their motivation behind that? It's a good question. If you look at the other tweets by the person who posted it, they're not they're all kind of just random old tweets or or they're just retweets, etc. And it's possible that the account has been stolen. I mean, often these accounts are set up um, for the promotion, but they're quite likely that this account has been stolen. Okay, it sounds quite similar to the kind of clickbait sort of advertising mm. post you quite often see on different websites. So is this just sort of a very extreme version of clickbait? bait or is there something more sinister going on it's not actually that uncommon for clickbait sites to falsely imply that celebrities died even even on clickbait sites which are advertised on mainstream news websites you'll quite often yeah. see things like oh you won't believe this celebrity this child star has now died or it'll have a picture quite often it's the picture of the former home alone actor macaulay culkin yep he's often a victim of these sort of fake clickbait sites these sort of more protracted ones where they're like they're they're literally suggesting that celebrities died and attributing to to a real legitimate news source like the Guardian, and then using that to promote various things. In this case, it's a cryptocurrency platform. So yeah, it's a really really bizarre and like quite developed uh, form of the clickbait scam. So the actual scam that this clickbait post was promoting was to do with AI, but it looks like AI was also used in the creation of the post itself. Can you explain that a wee bit further? The image itself that, that should be used to um, promote this fake obituary is a fairly clearly uh, AI image of Gino Campbell looking sad. It's hard to 100% tell, but it seems like the story itself had, has been created via an AI prompt using an AI program like ChatGPT to imagine a conversation between um, Graham Norton and Gino Campbell. It's an interesting development, I think, within the concept of like clickbait. I think it's become a lot e- easier since things like ChatGPT have become uh, widely available. You can just create an entire clickbait article to promote whatever you want, utilizing a few prompts in seconds using ChatGPT, rather than having to pay some poor person to <laughs> actually create the article, which is what used to happen. I think what was interesting about this particular post was that the poster had sort of all the trappings of what would a year ago have appeared to have been quite a trustworthy user of Twitter. Like it had mm. the blue tick. We've obviously discussed that extensively yeah. on recent pods. And it also was promoted. And I think normally the people that pay for promotion on Twitter or previously the people that pay for t- promotion on Twitter would have been big companies and things like that. So you could yeah. generally trust promoted posts. So how has Elon Musk, since his takeover, actually impacted pr- paid promotion since the collapse of the, the blue tick verification thing, which is where they used to verify notable people or supposedly people who were in some way trustworthy via the blue tick system, and now that's a paid for thing that you can do. There's been an explosion of misinformation, which we've talked about before, but it also means you can no longer have any real trust that promoted ads are from legitimate companies. Obviously, since the beginning of promotion of any kind, that 
companies have made misleading claims about their products, particularly on social media. That's not a new thing. But the ability to do it to such a kind of flagrant degree where you're literally pretending that a newspaper has written a story about your product um, and using uh, this insane clickbait to do it. That seems to be a, a bit of a new development. The other side of the problem is that since Elon Musk took over and since the um, his changes to the promotion system, like a lot of big advertisers have left the platform. So there was a CNN report came out in February that said more than half of Twitter's top 1,000 advertisers last September were no longer spending money on the platform. And they don't really necessarily want their promotional stuff sitting alongside you know anti-vax stuff or uh anti-lgbt stuff or whatever um so yeah it's, it's a it's a big problem and it's also seeming i mean i would assume a fairly big problem for musk himself because if his, his whole aim is to make the platform more profitable and to make it sort of more financially sustainable but when advertisers are leaving you know in droves because they can't trust their promotion will, will handle responsibly and put in the right context then yeah it doesn't seem like a particularly good thing for the platform overall That's all we've got time for for this week's podcast. Thanks so much to Nick for coming on and uh, discussing slaps with us, um, something that every journalist uh, seems to interact with at least once in their career, I assume. Um, so, Paul, what can people do if they want to get in touch with us for suggestions about the podcast or fact checks or anything that's in their head? Yeah, we're on all the normal social media channels. So Twitter at Ferret Scott. We're on Facebook, just the Ferret. We've also got our Ferret Underground page there. And we also have our community forum, community.theferret.scott, where our journalists are waiting to interact with our readers and listeners and anybody else who's interested in the Ferret. Cool. And remember, you can contact us via email, factcheck at theferret.scott. That's all we've got time for for this week's episode. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.